Hey, welcome, welcome. Would you please stay standing uh, for our scripture reading? All right, everyone. Hey, thank you for coming back to Center here. Um, we're going to move into a time of scripture, and we have the great Grace Padilla here who's going to be reading our scripture today from Ephesians chapter 1. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incom incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Ephesians 1, 15 through 23. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Amen. Have a seat. So I am so thrilled to welcome you back for our winter series that we're calling A Fellowship of Burning Hearts. And this series is our lead-in to the Lent prayer room, which is now our second year praying 24-7 nonstop, uh, 40 days and 40 nights during the days of Lent, right in this room behind me. And this year, the 24-7 prayer room starts February 14th, which... I know is Valentine's Day. I don't decide when Lent starts, by the way. It just happens to be when Lent starts this year. Um, and you might be wondering, and it's a valid question, why would you bother with doing a 24-7 prayer room where we book hours uh, to come in uh, at all hours of the morning and late at night to seek God in prayer? Why, why do that? Well, there's lots of reasons why. I'm just going to give you one for today. In a culture that preaches balance and doing everything in moderation, we are feeling called as a church to overdo it, to be excessive in one thing, which is our devotion to seek the presence of God as a matter of first importance in our life. Because we want God to be able to look down on our little community and to know that he has our hearts, that God has truly won our affection, our devotion. He has our love. We are not dispassionate. We are not apathetic. Our hearts are instead, by contrast, on fire with the love of Jesus. Now, I'm actually on board with most of the everything in moderation message. Like, I'm for seven hours of sleep per night. I'm for drinking a craft beer and not ten. Uh, so I am on board with everything in moderation message, except when it comes to our life with God. I think the excessive stretch goals like the 24-7 prayer room are necessary. I think I need this as much as you need this. I think this is why making a radical commitment to seek God's face in prayer is like a cleanse for our minds. See, the toxic things that dominate our attention in the digital age are being silenced in prayer. And instead, we're like curating our attention to be seeking God's presence, who he has promised us again and again is always with us. And that cleanse only lasts 40 days. It's not forever, but it's long enough to dramatically change the way we pray in the rest of our life. So uh, my wife's idea this year, because she learned that Lent starts on Valentine's Day. So Grace had this idea. She said, why don't we spend our Valentine's Day date uh, 
taking the first couple of shifts in the prayer room together. Now, I'm sure that for most of our culture, maybe our entire culture, and a lot of the Western church, that sounds fanatical and quite frankly, let's just be honest, a little bit weird. And if that's you, let me just shift your paradigm a little bit. Valentine's Day was created in the 19th century, and it was made sacred in our country by a bunch of capitalists who wanted to have another thing to drive consumer spending between Christmas and Mother's Day. And by contrast, enjoying the presence of God is what we were made for from the very beginning and has been the chief end of mankind since he breathed into Adam and Eve the breath of life in the Garden of Eden. This is what you and I have been been created for. So definitely, please don't mishear me. Celebrate the love you have with your partner and your spouse, not just on, on February 14th, but all year round. But keep pursuing God's sacred, the the seeking after God as a matter of first importance in your life. And if you love scripture, as I know we do, um, and you want to do what the scripture says, I believe that you will be drawn to a life of prayer. Uh, For this series, The Fellowship of Burning Hearts, we're looking at uh, the prayers of Paul from his letters to the first century churches. And the entire Bible, not just Paul's writings, is filled with prayers, examples of praying people and praying communities. And there is an entire book that is all prayer. And in it, we see this, this kind of excessive, superlative, desperate seeking God in prayer. And I think that this is what our culture is lacking, which is why if you've been a part of Riverbend for many years now, you're probably sick of hearing me talking about this. But the reality is, is that we as a church need to pursue, go against the grain of our culture and say, you know what, we will overdo it in one thing. We will be out of moderation and we will be excessive in one thing. And that will be our devotion to pursuing the face of God. Because the opportunity and the possibility and the potential of God's presence is right here for us. And every single praying community that we see in the scriptures, Paul, we're going to see today, has this kind of mentality too. So if we want to see God answer our prayers, if we want to see a move of God in our time, maybe even a spiritual awakening of some kind, I believe it takes a sort of a desperate, wholehearted, devoted cry. Is anybody with me on that? Okay. So the prayer that uh, Grace read for us a moment ago is a prayer that appeals to the power and the authority of Jesus. And my hope is uh, by the end of today that we'll be able to do the same. We'll have that same kind of ethos when we pray. So we're going to look at the prayer line by line, first of all, starting in verse 15. This is what it says. It says, For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people. Let's just stop there for a moment. It's a little bit unfair because we're picking this up mid-thought. And Paul has just finished uh, describing what it is that we are now in Jesus or in Christ. He just finished saying that the mystery that God had revealed in Christ is that one day he is reuniting all things in heaven and on earth. And then he also says that in Jesus we have been given every This is a direct quote, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He's also said that we were chosen before the foundations of the world, that we have past tense been forgiven for all of our sin. We have been redeemed in the language of Ephesians 1 by the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross and that ultimately we have the Holy Spirit as a deposit of our inheritance that we will fully receive in the age to come. And so what he's saying is that we are the kind of people who are living in light of that victory today. And then the way that that, the the seam from verse 14 to 15 ends for the praise of his glory. And so he says, for that reason, for that reason, everybody, I have not stopped praying for you. That's the, like the direct quote language from Paul. So right out of the gate, here's, I think, an important takeaway for us. We need a strong why in our life of prayer. So when I talk to people who are struggling to pray, there can be many reasons why that's the case. But I always want to start by trying to remind people of what the, what the offer is in prayer. 
And I try to remind people who God actually is and what his promise to us is in prayer, who we are to him when we pray. So like Paul, we want to pray and live in a way that is integrated with our high theology of God and his promise to be with us. These are not words that we are putting in God's mouth. He has told us hundreds and hundreds of times in in the scriptures that the goal of prayer is to enjoy him and to be with him. And we are simply wanting to integrate our praying life with the reality that we have learned from scripture. So there needs to be like a continuity, an integration between what we say that we believe about Jesus, where the story is actually going, and our actual life in prayer. So it is for this reason. Again, that language is super strong and emphatic. For that reason. He is praying. Paul is praying. And that's the reason why I pray and why we should pray too. So when we're praying, we're listening. Check this. We are listening to God. He is listening to us. And like we talked about last week, he has all of the storehouses of heaven filled to the brim with spiritual blessing. That's who we are approaching when we pray. And not only is he hearing us, but we are hearing him. So if we don't think and believe about God in this kind of way, I don't think we're actually going to be drawn to pray. And a lot of the prayerlessness in our culture, I think, is just indicative of the fact that we haven't really entered into the reality, the truth of Scripture of who God actually is and who he's revealed to be in our lives. But when we do, it's not like a a hack that is always going to work. We are still going to struggle to pray at times, but you're going to be pulled in closer and closer to the presence of God. And now you're approaching him with expectancy and anticipation because what you have seen on the pages of scripture is becoming true in your life as well. Next thing Paul says, he says, ever since I heard about your faith in Jesus and your love for all of God's people. Uh, So Paul has an interesting, unique relationship with the Ephesian church. Um, He's saying, listen, you guys are, are staying on track. You've got it. So Paul, if you don't know, he was the one who first preached the gospel in Ephesus. He was the one who planted the church in Ephesus, and he spent several years in Ephesus. And then he leaves for Macedonia uh, without any way to check on, uh, on them. There was no email. They didn't have like a cool creative director who was making posts on Instagram. He had no idea what was going on in Ephesus. Um, and so years later, when he's in Macedonia, he actually gets word back about the Ephesians' reputation. And the reputation is something like that. You know that church that you planted way back there in in Ephesus? Yeah, they're keeping the faith. They are loving all of God's holy people. And so as the church planter, as the one who originally sowed those seeds and reaped that harvest, Paul, no doubt, is so thankful and grateful that they have kept the faith. And by the way, this is the reputation that we want to leave in our city as well. We just want to be those kinds of people who keep the faith. And all of our days are loyal and faithful to Christ. Uh, This week I I heard about a dear friend of mine. Actually, he's one of my early mentors. And he uh, is probably one of the ones who I credit to teaching me how to pray to God with real fervor. His name's Michael Gray. And uh, he uh, started a nonprofit uh, that basically was doing a lot of work in the north of Africa, really, really hard to reach places, really uh, places with a lot of spiritual darkness and actually a lot of persecution of the church. And Michael went into Africa and he would go for a couple months at a time and he would just uh, start prayer meetings. He wouldn't start churches, he would start prayer meetings. And he would teach people how to pray. And then uh, he would go back to the United States and, and, and raise money and tell stories and then go back to Africa. And by the time he'd make it back, there were five to ten churches that had been planted because there's a group of people who are praying and contending for the kingdom of God to come. And now Michael Gray, is, he doesn't take any credit for this, but there have been hundreds of churches that have been planted in the north of Africa in, in, in places that you and I could never go and in open air talk about Jesus because of the persecution. And there are these vibrant 
churches and missionaries that are, go- that are um, moving the gospel of Jesus forward. And it all started because of resolve to pray. Anyways, uh, I heard this week uh, about my, my friend Michael. He's in his late 60s and he's had heart failure and lots of heart trouble over the years. And he's probably in the last week of his life. If he hasn't already passed away, I, I haven't checked my email this morning, so I don't know if he's passed on. But he's certainly really, really close to death. And as I've been reflecting on that this week, I've just been, uh, first of all, sad for his family, sad for the ministry. Uh, But as I was thinking about it, I'm not actually sad for him. I'm I'm actually honored that I get to be one of the brothers who gets to see him finish his race, the final lap of his race. And he gets to enter into glory within a week's time and get to reap the rewards of all of his suffering and all of his service here on the earth. And when I think about what Paul is writing about, saying, listen, I have heard of your reputation. Your reputation precedes you. You're continuing in the faith. You haven't given up. You've kept going. That reminds me of my friend Michael Gray. And I hope that one day I get to be, it gets to be said of me that I finished my race and that I was faithful to the end. We just want to be those kinds of people who are loyal to Jesus until the very end, who loves sincerely until the very end. So let's model our lives after men and women like Michael who are giving their whole lives in service to the Lord and his kingdom. Verse 16 says, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. That is a sentence to live by, if you ask me. Paul has two habits here buried in this one verse, two habits that we need to pay attention to. The first habit is he's thanking God. I have not stopped thanking God. And the second habit is praying for his people. Okay, so this is really good. My humble opinion, uh, after pastoring here in the Northwest for, uh, oh gosh, like 15, 16 years now, uh, I've come to the conclusion that we complain a lot. <laughs> here in Central Oregon, in the Pacific Northwest. And I know it's a cheap shot to pick on millennials, uh, but I feel like we're kind of the worst culprits of it. Although I will say that you Gen Xers, some of you really know how to complain too. It's like the baby boomers and the Gen Z. You guys know where it's at. Like boomers are just straight up tough. Gen Zers, you guys are really optimistic and ready to take on the world. You like, I love that about you guys. So the last thing I want to do is like make fun of us who are struggling because I know that life is hard and I'm going through a lot of things right now um, that are hard for me to talk about. But, but the attitude of the person of faith is choosing to intentionally anchor our hope in the promise of God and choosing to thank God in the middle of our lives that are filled with pain. Just like my friend Michael, who really for the last 10, 15 years Uh, has been struggling with heart failure and many, many other things, all the while, at the same time, continuing his mission to Africa, going to very unsafe places with horrible hospitals, and yet he is still choosing this attitude of thanksgiving and praise. There are There's thousands of scriptures in the Bible that talk about thanksgiving. Uh, Just one of my favorites right now is Psalm 100, verse 4. It says, Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Praise his name. For the Lord is good and his love endures forever. So there is something to be said about you and I choosing to be thankful. The, 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 uh, the Lord's Prayer starts out in a similar way. And, and, and Paul's life is a, is a perfect example of this. The book of, uh, uh, of Philippians is a great example as well, as well as Ephesians. But um, Paul's like run out of Ephesus by people who wanted to kill him. His ministry started a citywide riot. And so I, I'm just wondering what it must have been like for the church at Ephesus not having known whatever happened to Paul. The last time they saw Paul, he was running for his life because people wanted to kill him. Don't you think they would have maybe been wondering about him too? Like, how's he doing? Has he gotten jaded? Has he, uh, you know, has his life, his faith started to unravel? Because he's been persecuted and hated so much. Maybe he's like living in fear, looking over his shoulder or something like that. Maybe he's lost a little bit of his juice, you know, just because he's been almost murdered and killed so many different times. But he answers back and he says, since I left you, I have never stopped thanking God. I have never. And that's not to say that he hasn't had anything to complain about. Surely he did. But he is saying, I have never stopped 
thanking God. Day after day, I keep thanking him. I think this puts things into perspective because Paul's been through so much in his life. We can read about it in 2 Corinthians and the book of Acts and all of that. Uh, but also, number two, I think that having a thankful heart towards God, it drives out complaining. I don't think anyone here woke up this morning and said, you know what, I want to grumble and complain for the rest of my life. I want to be known for how I complain and for how I grumble. No, 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 no one wants to be that kind of a person. But when you actually choose a different way and you say, you know what, I'm going to have a, a thankful heart towards God. I'm going to thank him in the difficult times and in the good times. It drives out complaining. You don't feel sorry for yourself. You don't whine. You don't complain and thank God at the same time. Those two things just cannot coexist together. Now, I don't mean for this to sound cliche, but I'm convinced that choosing to thank God changes our attitude towards the rest of, of life. And I can just simply say from my own trials and my own hardship that in the worst of times, the ability to sit in those emotions and to feel those things, but then to also look past them, the things that are so front of mind and hard are easy to focus on, but instead to sit in those emotions, not deny how we're actually doing or how we're actually feeling, but then choosing to focus on the praiseworthy character of God and thank him for being him. This fundamentally changes our attitude towards the rest of life. And if you join us for any of our weekly prayer meetings, we have several each and every week. And if you join us in the prayer room, uh, we always encourage you to start with thanksgiving. Start by not just uh, thanking him for what's front of mind, but actually begin to sit in and remember, call to mind the good character traits of God and thanking him for it. So Paul never stopped thanking God, and he also never stopped praying for his people. He never stopped praying for his people. The great Eugene Peterson once wrote this, prayer is the cradle language of the church. This is our mother tongue. I love that. Going to God in prayer is like coming home. It's nostalgic. It reminds us of who we are, where we come from. It's centering. It's meant to like bring us back to this place of true north. The whole point of our existence comes into focus when we really learn to pray. And again, for Paul, this is about living into what he knows is true about Jesus. Jesus is the one who has been given all authority. And then he has given me the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, as a guarantee of my inheritance. And remember, he is a lavish, lavish gift giver. We learned that last week. So in total confidence, I am constantly praying to him because he's going to keep transforming my life. That is Paul's attitude when he says, I have not stopped praying, thanking God and praying for each of you. So I, I, this totally tracks in my life as well. One of the reasons why I'm so geeked out on prayer and why I keep calling you to prayer and it's going to be the focus of our church until kingdom come is because my life has been transformed by answered prayers. Sure, I've had tons of unanswered prayers, but my life has been transformed by the answered prayers as well. Some of you in this room are a direct answer. Uh, to prayer that I've had in, in the past. Others of you may not know this, but we prayed that the Lord would give us a space to gather in, and uh, this was a direct answer to prayer. So we are living in uh, a transformed existence due to God's readiness and willingness and longing to answer our prayers. So I'm praying for some things right now that um, I've can't even really talk about, but they're bigger things that I've ever prayed for ever before, and I believe that we're going to see God answer some of those. And, um, you know, James says that you, you have not because you ask not, and you have not because you ask with wrong motives. See, prayerlessness is just a symptom of a larger root problem, that we don't really get what God is up to, or we don't really believe him that the availability of the Holy Spirit, or the power of the Holy Spirit is coming to us through prayer. Now, I'm not saying this, I'm not trying to come off like condescending to any one of you who maybe really struggles to pray. I understand there are many in the room who are just like, dude, I love the I thought, love the idea, just don't really know how, or I've always struggled to pray. So certainly, please don't hear me being condescending to any of you. All I'm trying to say is that if we believe in the Jesus that Paul is talking about, then we are going to keep praying as well. 
Later in Ephesians, Paul says, we pray in every circumstance and in every way. When we're praying to the Lord Jesus because he's the one with all authority and raises the dead back to life. So uh, those are just the first couple of verses. We have a little ways to go before the end of this prayer. Verse 17, he says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. So hopefully what you're noticing here is all the superlative language, the -the over-the-top, excessive language that Paul is using here because they all preach to us something about the nature of God. And also, I think this is the window into a pastor's heart for the church. When I talk to other pastors, particularly the good ones, uh, this is what we want to see in our churches. The people that God has entrusted to us. Phil, one of my great mentors uh, here in the front row, he's quoted this verse to me many, many times. The heart of the pastor is this. Father, give us the spirit of wisdom. Give us the spirit of wisdom. According to Dallas Willard, wisdom is the settled disposition of the soul to act on the knowledge that God gives you. In other words, if you're wise or when you're wise, you're actually living the message of God. You're living the scriptures. And one of my favorite scriptures um, that I have prayed a lot um, as my, in my life as a young pastor it, it has been James chapter 1, verse 5. It says, if any one of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. And in some translations, it says liberally. I pray this constantly. I pray it constantly. Lord, would you give me your wisdom, not my own intellect, not any wisdom of man. Would you give me your wisdom? You know, it's often said that wisdom comes with age, and there's some some truth to that, but there's also a myth on both sides. There are a lot of old people that I know who are very wise, and I'm a huge advocate of honoring those who are older than me. That's biblical, and I think that in large part we need to recover a culture of honor. But according to James and Ephesians and Timothy and Proverbs and Jesus, just because you are old, it doesn't make you wise. I've actually had a lot of uh, unfortunate firsthand knowledge of foolishness from old pastors and elders um, and things like that. And, but there's also a good news thing associated with that, which is that you don't have to be old in order to be wise. You can be young, and you can be filled with God's wisdom if you seek it, if you're seeking after it regularly. And we have young people here, part of the church, who are wise. We sometimes say wise beyond your years because they have sought after the wisdom of God through the Scripture and through prayer. So true wisdom is not really anything to be proud of. Or proud about, like if you have actual wisdom, it's actually just a gift from God for you and for the good of the rest of the church. So Paul is praying that we would have the spirit of wisdom, not for our own benefit so that we could pat ourselves on the back, but so that we would be a gift to the larger church. So like Paul, let's keep asking God for his wisdom. Let's keep asking God for his wisdom. Amen? Okay, second prayer from the heart of a pastor for the church. Father, give us the spirit of wisdom. Father, give us the spirit of revelation. The spirit of revelation. This is the Greek word apocalypsis, which I'll give you. Sounds like a movie about the end of time. But it really just means to reveal. Apocalypsis is a word that means to reveal. And in the next verse, Paul uses, I think, a very important metaphor to illustrate the point that he's saying. He's saying, I pray that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened. So this is the concept of revelation, spiritual eyesight, the eyes of your heart, enlightening of our perspective. And these are very important metaphors that you actually see throughout the Bible, not just here in Ephesians. David, in Psalm 119, 18, he says, open my eyes to see the wonderful things in your law. Most of you probably know that 90s uh, song is amazing, amazing song, maybe a little bit cheesy today, but it's that song, open the eyes of my heart, Lord. I would sing it for you, but then we'd all have to go home early because I have an uncomfortably bad singing voice. Maybe Natalie and Grace will lead it for us later. What is that song? Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. But the, the biblical root uh, of that, this concept of our eyes being opened um, is actually way further back than you might expect. Genesis chapter 3. 
There is this moment in the Garden of Eden where the serpent, who represents the kingdom of darkness, represents the embodiment of evil, Satan. And he is tempting Eve. And this is what he says to Eve. He says, For God knows that when you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. So this is a, a very familiar story to most of us here. Here's the deception this, that Satan was trying to deceive Eve with. When you eat this tree, you won't need to take God's word for it anymore. You'll be wise yourself. You'll know what's good and evil. Your eyes will be opened. You'll be able to trust yourself, and you don't have to trust God anymore. That was the, the, the temptation and Eve said that, you know, that sounds pretty good. She takes the bait. The rest is history. And the Bible actually tells us that in some respects, their eyes are opened. Their innocence turns to like a painful realism about the consequences for their actions. But trusting in ourselves is not, it turns out, all that it's cracked up to be. So when you fast forward to Luke chapter 24, this is after Jesus' victory that he wins on the cross, after the resurrection, it's Easter Sunday, Jesus goes for a stroll with a few unsuspecting disciples on the road to Emmaus. And after they sit down and share a meal, he prays. And in Luke 24, 31, it says, Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him. So I love this. The kingdom of darkness corrupted our vision of God. It corrupted our vision of ourselves at the fall. And then Jesus comes. And one of the consequences or one of the results, one of the victories of Christ is that he restores our sight to reveal God to us again. One final scripture on this before we move on. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4 says that the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ who is the image of God now check this for what we preach is not ourselves but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus's sake for God who said let light shine out of darkness made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. Now, if that doesn't stir your heart, check your pulse, because this is an extremely hopeful promise. When we pray, Father, give us the spirit of revelation, we're saying, God, shine your light in our hearts, Lord. We want you, we desire you, we long for you. Are you guys still with me? Okay. The results of these prayers for wisdom and revelation are this. So that you may know him better. So the results of these prayers, friends, is that we would know the Lord. At the core of our faith is a personal God inviting us into relationship with him. So the reason why we are praying is so that we would deeply know intimately, like family, the character of God and the love of God and that we would truly experience in Him. And this is why, again, I find it to be so tragic when people view prayer as a chore. What do you want me to do? Okay, I guess, like, if it means that much to you, fine. I'll, I'll like, do an hour in the prayer room. Sure. It's a tragedy when we view prayer as a chore like that. I want us to start viewing your time in prayer as, like, a date with your soulmate as the one you long for. Please don't get hung up on that being cliche. Maybe think of it like this. View your prayer time as a moment that you spend with your hero. With your hero. Think, I want you to think about this because this has occurred to me many times in my life. Um, 
I have, those of you who know me well, you know one of my heroes is Elon Musk. I know that's really not hip or trendy to say right now. He's a very polarizing figure for all kinds of reasons. Uh, I respect his ambition. The dude wants to colonize Mars. I mean, like, that's ambition. Say what you will about the guy, that's ambition. And it impresses me. And so if I got the chance to hang with him, I'd be, like, all over it. Book it in my Google Cal, clear the buffer the rest of my day so I'd have plenty of time to be with just him, borrow a friend's Tesla or something like that for the whole experience. <laughs> just wanting to be there, be prepared to, to spend an, icon, uh, an hour with this icon of Western progress. But, but, but play that scenario out a little bit. What can Elon actually do for me? He's human. He's broken just like me. He's only worth a few billion. <laughs> so what can he really do? He's only got power over some parts of Texas and Twitter. I doubt he'd really give me the time of day, maybe some of his time and a little advice. But by contrast, the creator of the universe, he wants you to call him dad. He calls you his love. He says that he's jealous for your heart's affection. And he has deployed the riches of heaven to redeem you and adopt you as his own. He has stopped at nothing to win you back to himself. And his desire, his heart longs for you. And our invitation is to simply answer his love by looking at prayer as a moment in time where we get to connect and commune and spend with that kind of God. And I wish there was a way that I could emphasize that point even more because I fear that in our culture we've grown so used to the concept of God with us that we actually miss the wonder and the majesty of it. And this is why we make excessive uh, commitments to the things like the prayer room, to recapture the wonder and the majesty of being with God himself. Paul goes on to say, he says he prays for the Ephesians that they would know the hope of their calling and the riches of their glorious inheritance in his holy people. So the person of Christ is the prize, is the reward of prayer. There, he, there's prayer isn't a means to an end. It is in itself an end because we're connecting with God himself. But then he goes on to pray for a bunch more stuff. He says, the, I want you to have the hope of your calling. Which again, we're pretty locked into our cultural vantage point. We're like really into Mount Bachelor. Some of us are planning out brunch later and what we're going to do after this is over. But you have to imagine the first century audience of this leader. A letter. Paul, who planted the church, was thrown out of town a couple years prior. They were a small persecuted house church in like the regional mecca of paganism. There's all kinds of pagan worship going on. So the outlook of life in Ephesus was very grim. But Paul is praying for their hope. He's saying, I pray that you would know that you would experience the hope of your calling. You, I'm speaking to you, Riverbend Church, like each and every one of you, you have a divine vocation. You have a calling. You have a God-given identity, and you belong in the family of God. You have a place at his table. He has welcomed you in, and there is a very real hope in times of trouble because God has destined you to be his son or daughter. And that is the hope of your calling. And we need to be anchored in that hope. We need to choose to anchor ourselves in that hope. And the only way we do that is by staring into the face of God and taking him up on his offer to enjoy time with him. We have uh, different issues here in the, in, in what, in the Western culture than, than the first century culture. First century church was very restricted. They're sort of living underground. We, on the other hand, we have uh, way too much freedom than we know what to do with. Sociologists are studying this right now, that there are way too many options, way too much freedom. And it's actually paralyzing a generation in fear, insecurity about future and stuff like that. So the freedom to choose whatever we want. 
for ourselves. Uh, if that were the key to a happy life, we would be the most hope-filled generation on record. However, um, all of the research suggests that that freedom is the key to happiness is actually a real myth. And as the people of Jesus, we need to be assured in the hope of our actual calling, which isn't the freedom to do whatever we want or the freedom to be able to control outcomes, but it actually is a freedom that comes with knowing Christ. I don't know what the next 20 years will hold, but the one thing that I do know for certain is that I belong to King Jesus. I belong to him. And I'm going, one thing I do know, I don't know what, what, what the next five years will hold, but I will know that if the Lord tarries and, and if the Lord doesn't return, I know exactly how I'm going to be spending my time. I'm going to be sending, spending my time pursuing the Lord himself. So I want to just pose this as a question to you. Will you join us? Will you join the leadership of our church being a prophetic witness to our culture that is saying, you know what? We have hope in Christ, and here's the evidence of that fact, is what we devote ourselves to demonstrates the hope that we have. Spirit through Paul also wants us to know the riches of our inheritance. If you are in Christ, you are headed towards a great reward. Again, in our stream of the church, we really don't talk about this that much, but Jesus teaches us to actually be motivated by the rewards of heaven. Be motivated by the rewards of heaven. Paul's not bashful about it either. He's banking on the return that he's going to get from all of his sufferings on earth. And he says in 2 Corinthians, it will far outweigh all of what I've experienced in this life. And it is storing up for me an eternal weight of glory beyond comparison. The reality is, friends, that we need to have a long view. And we need to look about, look at um, the rewards of heaven and actually be motivated by them. Randy Alcorn writes, uh, For the Christian, death is not the end of an adventure, but a doorway from a world where dreams and adventures shrink to a world where dreams and adventures forever expand. And this is the hope of what my friend Michael Gray is about to step into. He's about to step into that. So we look forward uh, with hope-filled expectation that we will what we will receive in the age to come. I think uh, some Christians who've really helped me understand this and have expanded my vision of being motivated by receiving a glorious inheritance is actually the whole world of gospel choir music um, that has been mainly influenced and has its roots in black liberation theology. And in my view, they have taught, there's maybe lots of things you could critique, but they have totally nailed the heart of Ephesians 1 in a way that like my white evangelical roots just plainly do not. And I'm so grateful for the witness and the robust hope. There is a great power that comes with choosing to have joy in the future reign of God and anchoring hope there, the future reign of God. And the rest of this passage, which uh, we're just zooming through because we're short on time, is all about uh, the power of Jesus that has been poured out on the church. So let me just briefly read this final section, and then we'll talk about it. Verse 19 says, His incomparably great power for us who believe. So Paul is very intentionally praying in the name of Jesus. And I, I want us to think about why is it that we pray in the name of Jesus? Well, according to the scriptures... There are evil spiritual forces at play operating in the world. They are very evident in our world today. They're also evident in like your and my life. And Paul is writing to assure us that Jesus's power is immeasurable, that there is no rival to King Jesus. And the point of Ephesians is not that we would know stuff about the power of Jesus or that we would believe the right stuff about the power of Jesus. We, the point of Ephesians is that we would be able to experience and live the power of Jesus. Who's the power for? Look at verse 19. The power is for us who believe. The power is for us who believe. That's what the power is being manifest for, is for us. So the point of Ephesians is that we would not just know about or believe the right things about Jesus' victory, but that we would participate in the victory of Jesus. Ephesians 6.10, a few verses later, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. 
So our society's confusion and skepticism around the demonic, even maybe our fear of the things of the, the demonic, has actually kept us from harnessing the authority of Jesus that we have been given through Jesus. And so when I coach people to pray, we're always praying boldly and clearly in the power and in the authority of Jesus. And then he goes on to describe what that power is actually like. It's the same power as the mighty strength that he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion in every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. He has received all authority and power. So in other words, Jesus is now exalted as the Lord of heaven and earth. We are not following a weak God. His rule, and, his rule and reign is not contested. He has no rival. So therefore, we have been called to believe and have a hope-filled, holy confidence that that power resides in us. And that is not for our glory, but it is for the advance of the church. And it is a travesty if we set aside the power of Jesus and don't press in. And Paul is saying we have access to the power of the Holy Spirit through prayer. And his power is for you, not for me or some elite Christian group. It's for us. It's for the church. So what is holding us back? What is holding us back? I want you to ask yourself with this question. Where is the power of Jesus said to reside? Not my ideas about it. What is the Holy Scripture, the word from God say? Where is the power of God being harnessed? Verse 23. God has placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. So whether we are comfortable with this idea or not, the Father is elevating us, not me, not you, us, the church, his body, to harness Jesus' power for the mission. So the key to understanding this for me is this idea, this phrase, the final phrase, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. And there is this pattern, a motif throughout the library of scripture where God's presence comes and fills sacred spaces. The first space that God fills is the garden. He forms the Eden, he fills it, and then he invites humans to enjoy his divine hospitality. Then he fills the tabernacle. Then he fills the temple in 1 Kings 8. He comes down in, in power and in fire, and he dwells in his people. And then, in Acts, the Spirit comes and fills the church. That's what we're told. And again, we want to be all about the individual in our culture, but the fullness of him dwells not in the individual, but in the church. God's power rests on his church to carry on his mission. And that power for mission is fueled by our undevoted devotion to him in prayer and radical obedience. This is how we access the power of God. I simply ask you, do you want to experience that kind of power in your life? Do you want to experience that kind of love in your life? Do you want the spirit of wisdom? Do you want the spirit of revelation? Do you want to know the hope of your calling? Do you want to know the riches of your inheritance? Do you want it or do you not? It's on the table for you to receive. And listen, I, I know there's so many, uh, so many books. I've actually probably got a library of more than 50 books that are just on this topic of prayer. And all the books, frankly, have been written. I, I, you know, I'm working on a little short book right now, but honestly, all the books on prayer have been written. They've been written. And you should probably get, I'll give you a top five list. You should probably get them. They help kind of unlock things for you and teach you how to pray and all of that. So we need the instruction. We need the how-to. But really, honestly, what we actually need in the Western church is we need God to light the spark in your heart. The opportunity is right there for the taking. And my invitation to you, my longing as your pastor, is just you would know. You would know the hope of your calling. You would know the riches of your inheritance in Christ. That you would be filled 
with the knowledge of God that you may know him better. That he would have all of you, not part of your heart, but all of you. And this is why we do something excessive and out of the norm. Like overdo it by doing 40 days, 40 nights of nonstop around the clock prayer. It's because we want to stir in us that longing, that answering love. To say, God, you have come, you have not withheld anything good from us. You have lavished us with every spiritual blessing. And so we want to take hold of it. We want to take hold of you. We want to go hard, pursue you with all of our being. And so I get the books, read them. I'll give you my list. But I just want to pray that the Lord would light a spark in your heart, that you would want him back the way that he wants you. So would you stand with me and let's pray. So I encourage you to just open your hands with me. And I know this has been a longer teaching full of a lot of reminders. But again, like I say, my hope is not just that you would believe the right things about God and think the right things about prayer. But your heart would just be stirred. With this passion for so God, I just pray over my friends in Jesus' name. Pray that you would come. I pray that you would stir a passion in us. I pray that you would light a fire in us. I pray that we would take you up on this opportunity to seek you to gaze into the beauty of your face, King Jesus. Revive us. Awaken us. And I just pray over my friends here. It would fill them with all of the wisdom that comes from your spirit. And I pray that you would reveal to them in a deeper, more rich way, who you truly are, Lord Jesus. And I pray that your spirit of power, as we read today, is the same spirit that rose Jesus from the dead, is now harnessed and alive in the church. I pray you would pour that spirit out on us today. Build in us a resolve to seek you in prayer. We confess that there's a lot in this life that we don't know what's coming around the bend. We don't know what's coming in the next months and years. But what we do know is should you tarry what our life is all about. Our life is about pure devotion, pure worship, pure seeking and pursuit of you. So we pursue you here in this gathering. We turn our hearts to you now, Lord Jesus. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. So this time uh, of worship is a response to all of the beautiful truths that we just t discussed and talked about together. And I pray that you enter into full-hearted full worship and praise. We also have the tables of communion that are open now for you to come and take um, back to your seat and we'll celebrate together in just a moment. Let's give the Lord praise and honor.